All those who are holding tickets outside will get in as fast as they can. I'm speaking out to you, ladies and gentlemen, and I'm speaking to the crowd on the outside who seem to be standing rather reluctant to come in, and we're going to start this very soon. Location, location, location is a common phrase that can be applied to a large number of things in life. For film, though, it is one of the most crucial aspects. A setting within a film can be the spark in the audience's imaginations that bring them into the story. It gives context and history to the characters to make you believe that the setting lives within reality. That setting can be the backlot of a Hollywood studio made to look like the oceans in the midst of an epic sea battle, or the farms of New Zealand transformed into the rolling hills of the Shire, or the never-ending deserts of Tunisia that place you on a planet in a galaxy far, far away. Having the right setting and location of a film is the basis for the style, look, and creative feel of a film that allows the filmmakers to utilize that specific space in order to tell that story. So my first question is, what is the setting within any film that immediately pulled you into the story? So this is a list that could go on and on, but I immediately am drawn to Wes Anderson because I love his setting and set design and all the worlds he kind of builds in his films just because they're so whimsical and fun and you really feel like the locations of his film are really part of the characters and they're like an actual character within themselves. Um, Shawshank Redemption being one of my favorite films of all time, I can't not say that because the opening scene kind of introducing you to Shawshank and the sweeping music showing you like the setting and kind of each kind of pivotal point of the the location that you were going to be in throughout with these characters. So there's, I could just keep going on and on. I took a class in college called film is location and uh, we watched the long goodbye, which is like a seventies neo-noir film. And I think we really watched that because it really dives deep into locations of LA and these weird looking like seventies modern esque houses and it really it adds such an like alien dimension to that film that I really love a lot but how about you Ben there's so many films that we could just talk about a whole podcast on location yeah absolutely and uh if you probably could tell from the opening monologue that they gave I was referencing uh Ben-Hur uh Lord of the Rings because if you know me Lord of the Rings is everything to me and then Star Wars uh but there are other ones that I thought of that really had more to focus on a single setting as the main uh, location and the main backdrop to everything. So the first one that immediately came to mind was Clerks and just using that convenience store. I thought of uh, uh, Rope. There's also Reservoir Dogs, Saw to an extent, even though they do jump around a little bit. But all those movies, like the whole setting and the feel of the film, and and honestly just being in one setting the whole entire time really challenges to me, the filmmaker and the audience, because you're focused on just being there and you have to take everything that the characters are telling you as the, the, I guess the exposition for what the world is, you know, to really explain that. And just to me, when, whenever I can really lock into something that's going on in the background in the setting, um, I really appreciate it more because I recognize that there was thought that there are so many people who are working behind the scenes of films and that it's these like little details like set design production design that uh, is so crucial to telling the story and you reference in college you know finding location and how important that was I know for me uh, I remember one of the first like uh, student things I had to do I think it was my sophomore year and uh, we just had to do a simple uh, dialogue conversation back and forth and we just went to like a random classroom and it just looked like shit 
you know, <laughs> and it, and it it didn't have to be that like, we could have been more adventurous, but that whole idea of that location, 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 it it is so crucial because yeah, all these movies could just be made, especially now on green screens, but back then they could have all just been done in a Hollywood backlot on the studio. But they there are some people who went to the you know, went to further extents to make something more, to be in a in a different space, to be outside, to really be authentic. You know, when we can think about a movie like Simmerin, like building up that whole entire town, it was amazing. Like, and they didn't have to do that, but they did, and added that much more to the actual feel of the film. It wasn't a great film, but it added something to it. Certainly, it's the there's a difference between finding good location that's natural, like in the actual land, really dependent on the scene, of course. But then there's also the other side of things, which is like making your location, making it so that it's exactly what you want it to be. And I think of like Rear Window and how iconic that kind of little sh- like little neighborhood street is. And that's completely fake. Like people thought it was so realistic at the time that it was actually a street in New York that they like filmed and took over the whole block. But it's so natural and like immersive and you feel like you're one of the neighbors, obviously, because Hitchcock's such a great filmmaker, as we talked about last episode. But it's also key and just so important to acknowledge just how good that production design and how much that brings you into the world. And, yeah, it's funny talking about having locations in school. That's obviously such a huge issue. And it's like one of the hardest things, obviously, about making uh, films in college. And you could really see that progression throughout like the four years that we were in school where people would go every almost like 80% of the short films freshman year of college are all in a dorm room because it's like this is what I have it's easy we like are still like don't understand the process of the language of filmmaking so it's just like we don't really see how that's important it's just like oh no like the person that's there is more important like I don't really care like you like slowly pick up and you could see as the years go on that like people are like finding cool locations and you're starting to question like oh where is that oh they shot outside of New York oh they shot like outside of the town that our college was in so it's it's so important. I think that was a great lesson for me just being in like film school and like going throughout the years trying to find these locations, trying to like figure out what makes sense for the characters and it's such a such a difficult thing to do and not only to kind of get people on board with it, like my senior thesis was um all about kitchens and all about like a chef. So I really wanted to have like a really nice uh, kitchen to kind of show off these characters. It was supposed to be like a fine dining restaurant and I ran into such a big issue because my actual location for the restaurant where the restaurant scenes would be had like this beautiful kitchen, but the back house of the kitchen where I also needed to shoot scenes, it was a nightmare. It was like cramped. There's no way we're ever going to film there. So I had to like essentially make two different kitchens from two different locations feel as if there are one location. And that was such a challenge, but that taught me also about just how manipulative you can be and like how you can really change and manipulate a location to feel as if it's one to like take two different shoots entirely and then forge them together in the editing room and how much that can change things but it was so important to just kind of like learn and really to keep failing honestly in school to like yeah. learn how important uh like finding a good set and a good location is yeah 100 percent um i think that i yeah i mean i can speak from personal experience how locations can bite you in the ass uh but it, it's just so important and, and it's not uncommon to use multiple locations for what should be the same or I guess what could just be like a house. There's probably multiple parts of like different houses or different studios that are used to make that one thing. And it's uh it's a tool of the trade. It's what, you know, has to get done, but it's pretty cool because that's what filmmaking can be. It can be this movie magic within the camera that uh, for the audience wouldn't know that for people like me and you who might have an eye for it, but we're not going to always pick up on it. 
Um, so the, I'm sure people are wondering, why are we talking about location at the beginning of this episode? Well, we felt that this movie, How Green Was My Valley, and its location and the way that the whole, uh, I guess, set up the whole set, I want to call it, because it's not really a set. It's it, it's in uh, it's, it was filmed in California, um, in like the mountains, but it but there was a set built into it. But anyways, it's it's extremely important to the story, to the whole idea. Um, it's even about, in the title, yeah, it's even in the title. So it it's just crucial to how successful this film was and, and the look and feel of it. Uh, that we want to take the time to talk about location and how a setting and and set decorators and production designers are so crucial to making a film that uh, we're going to be talking about a film from 1941 and just how important that set decoration was to uh, this film being a Best Picture winner. So let me ask you this. Being being such a big fan of the Lord of the Rings trilogy and how they shot on location, how they like really used little CGI, um, really when it only came to certain sequences, they kind of like dive deep into CGI. But in terms of location, it was very much shot on location to be um, very much the Shire, and you know, you know, I don't need to explain this to you. So, how do you <laughs> feel about that being one of the last big epics to kind of really shoot on location to like limit CGI in that way? Do you feel like you miss that, or wish like other films still did yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. Oh, one hundred percent, I miss it. Just be that. I think that what Lord of the Rings did was truly incredible, and it created a whole film industry in New Zealand. You know, now you have Marvel movies being made in New Zealand. Uh, I, yeah, I obviously I do miss that. Um, but I don't know what films that could be coming out that would be similar to Lord of the Rings that would need to be on location like that. But also the location of Lord of the Rings is something that is a figment of our imaginations. But that's, I guess, what makes it really cool is because there's a real world thing that captured everyone's imaginations. Like, well, that's a, like that's, that's how real. I pictured it. Yeah, yeah, it felt so real. And um, I could go on for hours and, and yeah, days. I didn't want to. I shouldn't have baited you there, like that. There, there's but. so much like because I immediately thought of like different stories that I know about Lord of the Rings and they how they film different at different locations and then mesh it into one. It, I, I could go on for for days about it, but we won't uh, do that. Uh, instead, I will ask John this question, and that is: Is How Green Was My Valley worthy of the Best Picture Award of 1941? How Green Was My Valley At the turn of the century in a Welsh mining village, the Morgans raise coal-mining sons and hope their youngest will find a better life. The film begins with a monologue by an older Hugh Morgan. I am packing my belongings in the shawl my mother used to wear when she went to the market, and I am going from my valley. This time I shall never return. I am leaving behind me my 50 years of memory. The valley and its villages are now blackened by the dust of the coal mines that surround the area. A young Hugh, the youngest child of Gwilla Morgan, walks home with his father to meet his mother, Beth. His older brothers, Yanto, Ivor, Davy, Gwilm Jr., and Owen all work in the coal mines with their father, while sister Anne Harrod keeps house with their mother. Hugh's childhood is idyllic. The town, not yet overrun with mining spoil, is beautiful and the household is warm and loving. The miners sing as they walk home. The wages are collected, the men wash, then eat together. Afterwards, the spending money is given out. Hugh is smitten on meeting Bronwyn, a girl engaged to be married to his eldest brother, Ivor. 
At the boisterous wedding party, Anne Harrod meets the new preacher, Mr. Griffith, and there is an obvious mutual attraction. Trouble begins when the mine owner decreases wages, and the miners strike in protest. Gwillem's attempt to mediate by not endorsing a strike estranges him from the other miners, as well as his older sons, who leave the house. Beth interrupts a late-night meeting of the strikers, threatening to kill anyone who harms her husband. While returning home, crossing the fields in a snowstorm, in the dark, Beth falls into the river. Hugh dives in to save her with the help of the townspeople and temporarily loses the use of his legs. He recovers with the help of Mr. Griffith, which further endears the latter to Anne Harrod. The strike is eventually settled, and Gwillem and his sons reconcile, yet many miners have lost their jobs. Anne Harrod is courted by the mine owner's son, Yeston Evans. Though she loves Mr. Griffith, Mr. Griffith loves her too to the malicious delight of the gossipy townswomen, but cannot bear to subject her to an impoverished churchman's life. And Harrod submits to a loveless marriage to Evans, and they relocate out of the country. Hugh begins school at a nearby village. Abused by other boys, he is taught to fight by boxer Di Bando and his crony, Sypartha. After a beating by the cruel teacher, Mr. Jonas, Di Bando avenges Hugh with an impromptu boxing display on Mr. Jonas to the delight of his pupils. On the day that Bronwyn gives birth to their child, Ivor is killed in a mine accident. Later, two of Morgan's sons are dismissed in favor of less experienced, cheaper laborers. With no job prospects, they leave to seek their fortunes abroad. Hugh is awarded a scholarship to university, but to his father's dismay, he refuses to work in the mines. He relocates with Bronwyn to help provide for her and her child. When Enharid returns with her husband, vicious gossip of an impending divorce spreads through the town. Mr. Griffith is denounced by the church deacons, and after condemning the town's small-mindedness, he decides to leave. Just then, the alarm whistle sounds, signaling another mine disaster. Several men are injured, and Gwillem and others are trapped in a cave Young Hugh, Mr. Griffith, and Di Bondo descend with others for a rescue attempt. Gwillem and his son are briefly reunited, before he succumbs to his injuries. Hugh rides the lift to the surface, cradling his father's body, his coal blackened face devoid of youthful innocence. Narration by an older Hugh recalls, Men like my father cannot die. They are with me still, real in memory as they were in flesh, loving and beloved forever. How green was my valley then. The movie ends with a montage of family vignettes showing Hugh with his father and mother, his brothers and sister. How Green Was My Valley starred Walter Pigeon as Mr. Griffith, Maureen O'Hara as Inharid, Anna Lee as Bronwyn, Donald Crisp as Mr. Morgan, Rowdy McDowell as Hugh, John Loder as Yanto, Sarah Allgood as Mrs. Morgan, Barry Fitzgerald as Sephartha, Patrick Knowles as Ivor, Richard Fraser as Davy, Evan S. Evans as Willem Jr., James Monks as Owen, and Reese Williams as Di Bondo. How Green Was My Valley was directed by John Ford. Screenplay by Philip Dunn, based on the novel by Richard Llewellyn. Produced by Daryl F. Zanuck. Music by Alfred Newman. Cinematography by Arthur C. Miller. Film editing by James B. Clark. Art direction by Richard Day and Nathan Geron. So, How Green Was My Valley? Let's start with the beginning and that is the opening narration by an older Hugh Morgan. And uh, it's a pretty lengthy and meaty uh, intro to the film. It's about like, I think like almost 20 minutes where 
he's just narrating, kind of going through his whole life. And it gives actually a really great perspective on, uh, on, on the world. It really builds up everything. And, and going back to that whole location discussion, uh, the whole movie takes place in this village in what's supposed to be South Wales. Um, it's an unnamed village. They never exactly say like what the name of the, of the town is, but, um, it's supposed to be in South Wales in in these big rolling Hills and uh, you can just tell from the beginning in the opening narration when they're showing what the location looks like that everything is pretty run down. There was a lot. It seems like there's a lot of destruction. Uh, I have a theory that this could be taking place as World War II is starting, which is why maybe everything looks like the way it does, where it looks like it was bombed. But it, it is also a reflection on the coal mining and how the mining in the town really just destroyed the landscape and pretty much just sucked everything from under the earth and and gave this black slag uh so it's a pretty meaty opening monologue uh but uh there is a few things that i guess i wanted to point out and um one of the lines that he says at the beginning he says uh can i believe my friends all gone when their voices are still glory in my ears no and i will stand to say no and no again for they remain a living truth within my mind there's no fence nor hedge around time that is gone and that is kind of what this whole film is about. And you have to remember that perspective pretty much the whole time as you're watching is that we're getting it from Hugh and Hugh was a child during most of the events from the film. So there's these, you know, rose colored glasses that are kind of put over everything. And, uh, I, and just to me, that whole idea that these people can't die out of my mind, that there was a glory in what was my Valley, uh, is really impactful and emotional just to start out. And then you also get this really great look into this, family and they're really happy so you're sad and distraught already but you're also really happy because you see this whole family and, and and this really great dynamic i think it's actually a really beautiful family dynamic throughout the film yeah it's an amazing family dynamic it's probably one of my favorite parts of the movie but yeah it is it does immediately you have this like soft tender voiceover that's probably the best voiceover we've heard yet. We haven't heard too much voiceover right in any of the films i mean last yeah, last episode we had rebecca which kind of had a little slightest bit yeah. of voiceover, but this is by far the most voiceover we've had in a film, and it's really well done. I think voiceover is like one of the hardest things to do, and when it comes to writing screenplays, because you just have to reveal more information that you can't do visually, right? So you have to like show an inner voice that's natural and doesn't just sound like someone telling you the things that you need to know. That's revealing. That's personable and. Even from the just the title, How Green Was My Valley, there's like a sadness to there because it's past tense thinking or longing about what used to be. It's like a question, too, because he's questioning how green was it? Yeah, you know, like originally how green was it? Like there were my eyes deceiving me, right? Yeah. Which is really interesting. It's like a, a theme that we haven't really explored yet in any of these best pictures. And it's funny looking at this overall. I'll probably dive deep in, more into this in a little bit, but this film really felt the most... I hate using this word, but like Oscar Beatty out of any of the films we've seen. <laughs> and I don't think it's any, there's no way you can kind of hurt the film by saying that because I think it just is kind of how it's evolved over time and become yeah. more of a cliche. You know, you have this really melodramatic, like family dynamic. You have themes of uh, like, I don't, not climate change, but themes about like how you're affecting mother nature. You have like the forbidden love aspect of the film. You have 
all these elements like the kid growing up, Hugh growing up and like learning and his theme about like losing his innocence. All these are really have become like very common Oscar-y quote unquote beta baby things that we've seen throughout the year. So it's really interesting to see this movie kind of set this up. And it's also about like this Welsh town, you know, this like this small European town, which I feel is like another like very much a Oscar thing that we, we see eventually um, from this point. But Overall, for me, this film was really powerful. I think mainly just how well it's done visually with obviously great performances and that really strong family dynamic. Yeah, and I think what's interesting about the... Um, and you you touched upon it with how you can use a voiceover to... Uh, how you're able to use that when, when filming something and, and telling that story. Because John Ford, the director, was very notorious for speeding through things and not in a bad way, but, but getting everything to the point that really streamlining the story. He was not a director who, you know, was, who wanted to fluff things up. He wanted to tell his story, which is what one what made him very popular with studios because they could give him and trust him these big budget things to stay on track. And he was then also able to tell it effectively. And, and to me, when I was watching the opening, I almost felt that it was, an homage to like silent films because there's real, yeah, you have the narration in that opening, but you don't have any uh, actual dialogue diegetic to what you're seeing on screen. And, uh, and, and to me, so watching the whole opening felt very, very much like a silent movie. There was so much physicality and, you know, you, you start out with, uh, you know, with young Hugh and his father walking around in the Valley, you see the men in the coal mines coming down, you know, walking again, like this huge, like set piece, the whole town, the way it's a lot of low angled shots. It's like a German expressionist type of thing uh, that Ford is very influenced by where the, where it looks like the town is very much towering over and looks like it's going to like almost fall into you like an inception like type of yeah, thing. Yeah. Bending. Yeah. Like, yeah, exactly. Like bending it in the frame. And uh, so there's just like all this like physicality. They're all washing themselves at the beginning. There's the dinner scene where you can just tell from that dynamic one, you understand that the, like the command the father has in the family how respectful his children are, how Beth Morgan really runs the house. And uh, I think even in that opening monologue uh, that Hugh says his mother was the heart of the house, which is very cliche and, and very, you know, just not feminist, you know, style of like how to present, uh, present women in a film, but it's very effective and very impactful to just the idea that this family, one is very connected with each other and connected to their whole surrounding and their, whole area and i just felt that the opening monologue was just so good and just the whole introduction it really brought me in and i understood all the characters almost immediately you know it, it just felt and, and and that's one of the issues with the film is that i you know i saw all these brothers of hughes that i was like wow there's like so many brothers there's so many cool funny things you can do without a older brother younger brother relationship and they just didn't expand it upon at least that part of the film but so i thought that was really strong and then the other strong thing and very interesting subplot to the whole movie is Hughes infatuation with his sister-in-law Bronwyn that is I don't think I've ever seen that in in any other film where the young kid is in love with his older brother's wife and then the way it's played up later on in the film it's really it's really interesting and and I was something that I really caught on to it's I, I wouldn't say like brother's wife is what I've seen before but I think we've seen that in film where like a young kid wants the older girl. He thinks he's there. And that really plays into his theme of just really maturing and losing that innocence, which makes it so much more heartbreaking because he doesn't even, 
he's so young and naive that like he doesn't even understand the social dynamic of his brother's wife and yeah. he just like probably likes her like maybe she probably makes him laugh like he just like thinks she's pretty but he's so young that he doesn't even like realize that there's anything sexual there it's just like i enjoy her company so therefore i like her like we should get married like yeah she's pretty oh yeah exactly like a little kid just like not understanding he just enjoys the time they spend together yeah and i love the opening like you said it's while we have this voiceover it's just visually telling us everything that we need to know as well at the same time like I wrote in my notes that it felt very much like National Geographic or like <laughs> no reservations like Anthony Bourdain's, um, you know, docuseries where it just lets you kind of see a close up of a t- random townswoman. Like we don't know this townswoman's name. We never will in this movie. But here's this beautiful, gorgeous black and white close up of her where you see like every single like f- freckle and wrinkle on her. And there's so many moments like that in the opening just to kind of like have you buried deep into this no pun intended buried deep into this like coal miner town and it's really powerful and it's this conflicting uh, mother nature versus like man's destruction of earth going on already and like none of this is like outright told it's just like what you're kind of ingesting from the opening scenes and kind of seeing their everyday life i found it like really really powerful and the first 30 minutes of this movie honestly was what i probably enjoyed the most yeah it was really good and uh it, it, again, like yeah, it was extremely powerful. And one of the one other thing about the opening that I really liked was the singing. Um, Hugh says in his opening uh, monologue, uh, "Someone would strike up a song, and the valley would ring with the sound of many voices. For singing is in my people, as sight is in the eye." And I really liked that. Uh, I used to have a shirt that said, "Music is my religion," uh, which I felt was very fitting for me. And just that whole idea that that song it's so corny. Well, it's <laughs> it is corny. I bought it in eighth grade. You know, bl- <laughs> blame eighth grade version of me. But uh, anyways, the it's a that's like a Capra theme. We talked about that, and 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 you can't take it with you that singing and and bringing everyone together and how that is such a community builder. I mean, there are so many scenes in this movie where they're all just packed into the Morgan's house. Literally the whole town is packed into the Morgan's house and they're all just getting drunk and singing and, and dancing with each other. And it's, it's quite, it's quite nice. It's something that is way that I is lost. I think in today's, you know, films. And, uh, I, I really enjoy it. I really enjoy that whole idea of that singing and can really bring a community together. Uh, but what can really, bring a community apart is uh decreasing your wages <laughs> yeah certainly it's fucking heartbreaking just because y- you're seeing the work that they do and like without even seeing this in a film you know how miserable you can imagine a coal miner's life is and how absolutely brutal it is and they make it seem like they aren't even making that much money even to begin with so then no. cut wages it's it's awful and to, to one little note to the singing i really found that endearing because again it's like building up the town again obviously remind me of the seven dwarfs probably not intentional probably just happened to be you know similar timing in terms of when both of these movies came out but it does build up this town and you're like kind of understanding it and then yeah there's like the first crushing blow right of like something's changing you're immediately know that this story has to take turns and has to get darker because of just simply the title kind of indicating that and it's it's so heartbreaking i think honestly the scene one of my favorite scenes is when they're all at the, the family dinner table and it's essentially the sons kind of acknowledging that they don't want to cut wages, right? And yeah. it's this power dynamic that you see from the father's point of view that I found really, really powerful because really 
we'll get into this a little bit more of like who's the main character but Hugh is is definitely really pivotal point in this movie and you see the movie or you see the world from his eyes a lot of the time and he's just there really kind of like looking for his father's acceptance like all the older boys in the family they are concerned about you know the important things in life paying for their family you know having enough money uh, but also not being treated in the way that this like evil I wouldn't say corporation but this evil minor owner kind of comes in and tries to control their family so it's heartbreaking because it's like this family shouldn't be in this situation to begin with like it's not caused by anyone in the family it's all like exterior exterior circumstances and exterior kind of trouble coming at their family so yeah it's 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 so sad it's so sad yeah. already yeah it's sad and uh just to backtrack for a second just to give context to the dynamic so Gwilym the father is sort of like the head of all the workers uh i guess he's like a union representative but there was no union for these workers uh so when the sons are basically saying like this is unfair uh Gwilym is not happy <laughs> he actually says this line union is it i never thought i'd hear my own sons talk socialist nonsense I have had enough of this talk and I, they, they are, you know, they want to be within the boundaries of respect when talking to their father about this, but they are very adamant that he's wrong and that they, they don't agree with him. And uh, one of the sons, I think it's Davy is the one that says this. He says, uh, I will speak against injustice anywhere with permission or without it. And that's a very powerful thing to say, especially to this father figure who, uh, a lot of people who, when, when researching about this film, like to call him a stern character. I don't think he's stern at all. I just think that he like, he just demands respect from his sons, and the sons are more than willing to give it to him because he is such a caring and, and very important figure in their lives. But anyways, just to be able to have the balls to say that to, this, to their father and this dominant figure in their lives to say, like, yeah, you, you're wrong about this, and there's these injustices going on, and it's just these big political, like right off the bat, you have an environmental theme with the, with the Valley going to waste. And then you have these political themes, which are still kind of, you know, echoing in today's world, you know, cause these coal miners are essentially being forced out cause they're poor laborers from other valleys and other towns that need the work, which is a, a crisis in today's world where people are getting cheaper wages because they need the work. And uh, so it's just like a very interesting dynamic, like right off the bat to just challenge and to, bring you right into the, the the realm of the film i think by me even saying that it's oscar baity kind of hurts the film because it's obviously not its intent is way before we would even have that kind of phrase or acknowledge that as being a thing from films but i think it's just how good the writing is and how these themes are like so properly explored and like you said it's so prominent even in today's world where this feels so remote and alien in terms of like the world that they live in obviously coal miners um today just feels like it's not a job that really exists anymore but it at the same time just feels so relevant and there's so many issues i think you can relate to any of this family drama i do think the father is stern just because i think that's he's stern but he's not again i guess it's just like reason beat his kids but stern i think is the proper word yeah but he's not harsh he's not mean and i feel like when I was researching and reading how people would describe his character, which just felt very off base because I actually felt he was so loving and, and such a great father figure because he, yeah, he was stern to his kids, but he also was willing to just show them actual love, which is a very foreign thing for a male to do, you know, in film at this time. It's just such a, 
it, it was very a very cool dynamic and uh so if anyone reads up about this film just know that donald crisp character is not how maybe it's written out to be he's a much more in-depth character at least to me um we i we usually don't talk about our, our feelings before this we like to go into these conversations cold so maybe you felt that way that he was more stern and more not as like loving I don't know. No, I, I see the word stern to me does not imply that if you're a stern father, I don't think that doesn't, you know, I don't think that means you're not loving. I just feels like you're stuck in your ways and your rules are very strict and you're going to make those very present. So I think you can be a stern father while also being a very loving father. It's just, that's, that's something that I think John Ford seems to have an interest in. I, I haven't seen too many of his films. I love a good Western. I, I've seen, um, some of the John Wayne films he made uh, over the years, but it seems like you compared him a little bit to Capra with the coal mining singing. To me, he feels like the other side of America, where it's like the dark masculinity, like the way that Hugh was kind of manipulated, not in a bad way, saying manipulated makes it sound worse, but the way he's kind of controlled yin and yang from his dad and from his mom, where he's like, who do I like take from? Like, who do I learn from the most? Like, which person should I be? Is it a combination of the two? Is it one or the other? And I feel like John Ford has that kind of concentration throughout his films where he wants to um, show these masculine characters, but also like question the masculinity and question what's right or what's wrong. I I don't think there's an ending answer to these questions. It just feels like questions that he's so interested in that keeps coming up. And I think it comes up later in his Western films as well. Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree. You know, I think that when you compare it to the year before in 1940 with uh, grapes of wrath, like that was just a very, it, it focuses on so many things that should be great about America and that, and, and should be idyllic, but it's not. And there's a lot more, yeah, there's a lot of darkness and, you know, shit just isn't right. Sometimes there's a lot of, you know, strife, you know, with, within the politics of your work and then where you live and which is all like very common knowledge, but yeah, that is like stuff that I think John Ford likes to tackle versus Capra where it's more things it's are celebrating. Yeah. More it's, ce- so. it's celebrating the coming togetherness. Whereas with Ford, it's like, yeah, we can come together, but there's still bad shit that happens. Yeah. It's like kind of, picking apart things and being like taking a blanket off of you and being like, what's under here? Like there's more than what you see on the outside. Yeah. It's an optimistic Capra's optimistic Ford is very pessimistic. Uh, you know, that's just like their styles and that's what seems to really come across. Uh, but kind of moving forward more into the story. So we, we get this really great, uh, scene where, uh, Basically, the whole town is against Gwillem and basically all the workers, they went on strike and they're just like, fuck this guy. Like, we don't like him. They even throw a rock through the window of the Morgan's house. And it seems like they're going to go after Gwillem and potentially kill him. And so Beth Morgan, uh, his wife and the baddest mother she is, decides to defend him and go up to all the other miners to tell them like how wrong they are. Um and she, she has this great speech. She goes, I've come up here to tell you what I think of you all because you are talking against my husband. You are a lot of cowards to go against him. He has done nothing against you and he never has. And you know it well. How some of you, you smug faced hypocrites can sit in the same chapel with him. I cannot tell. To say he is the owner is not only nonsense, but downright wickedness. There's one thing more I've got to say. And it is this. If harm comes to Gwillem, I will find out the men and I will kill them with my two hands. And this I will swear by God Almighty. 
Uh, compare that to the end of uh, the first half of Gone with the Wind, where <laughs> Scarlett Harris like, "My God is my witness, I'm going to do this." Beth Morgan's like, "No, I'm literally going to fucking kill you if you touch my <laughs> husband." <laughs> yeah, I loved her character because she was like, like you said, she feels like this stereotypical like mom living in this kind of uh, man's world essentially. But no, it turns the the tide entirely. Where she's like, "No, you think I'm going to lay down? I'm going to roll over?" And you think like. You're just only going to listen to my husband. He's the only one who's really responsible for the rules that get laid down. No. And it, it feels like, fuck. Like, wow, this movie is from 1941. Like, I'm surprised that they're really, I guess, Gone with the Wind really starts to make changes and, and really allows uh, the writing to kind of actually have in-depth female characters where they're not one note. They're not there to service a man. They're there at the same time to protect a man in a way that, you know, like you would always want in a partner, someone who's literally there to like fuck someone up, you know, yeah, someone yeah. who's there to like defend you no matter what. And it's really powerful. I don't think we've seen that kind of connection or that kind of love in a film yet. Yeah, no, their marriage is very strong and uh, they they do a great job raising their sons. It, it, it definitely seems like in the, in the one daughter inherit. And uh, I just really like that speech. And, and what it transitions to is then this uh I don't. Wanna, I guess it's an accident where she falls into the this like icy river, and then Hugh jumps in after her, and then they both get saved. But the result of that is that uh, Hugh essentially loses his, the use of his legs for. The doctor says it's going to be like a year or two, and it's kind of hard to tell the time of this film because they strictly use Rowdy McDowell as Hugh as a child actor. So you feel like a lot of time is passing, but. It, it doesn't look that way at times. It's hard to tell. Yeah, it's yeah. hard to tell. But you then end up with this dynamic where Hugh is bedridden and he has to rely upon everyone else in, in his family to, to take care of him. And it's just this whole like shock to the system, literally, where he, he changes a little bit too. So it's kind of, like, again, like one of those things where his innocence starts to be stripped away because now he... I don't want to call him. He's he's, he's handicapped, but at a li- but only for a limited amount of time that he's handicapped. Yeah, and I mean, do we want to jump forward into the revealing that he's no longer handicapped? The oh yeah, well you should just talk about that now because that's like <laughs> pro- you think it's. Mo- I I think we both agree it's the most ridiculous part of the film. It's so goofy, but like it's. <laughs> That's, this movie's so it's ho- so hard to like say anything bad about it because everything is so good. Like the writing is so phenomenal and it's so in detail. And all these characters feel like unique and original and really touching some of the lines that they read. And and then on top of it, you have this insanely gorgeous cinematography. And even the scene where you have Walter Pigeon who plays Mister Griffith, and he's essentially becoming an, also this father figure. I think where you see that masculine kind of back and forth with Hugh who's going to be looking at him and also seeing a father figure him in him as well. And he's kind of pushing him, which I hate this, which is basically like walk, walk, like you got to get up, like you can use your legs, you can do this. And it just, it's so hard not to watch these scenes and think about someone who's like a physical therapist now, someone who's a quadriplegic, someone who's like actually gone through some of these things and to just see someone, it's a movie, I get it, it's not real. It's based off a book, whatever. But to see someone just yell at someone to walk, and that's all it takes. Like, all you need is someone to really push you, and that's all it takes to, like, walk again. It's so ridiculous that, like, it takes me out of the movie so much. Yeah, it, it's certainly strange. And, and Hugh and Mr. Griffith's uh, relationship is actually very strong. I do want to touch upon that a little bit. But he does, Mr. Griffith, he is a preacher, 
And so he does use like faith and, and God as like some of his reasoning for like why you will get better. Even though the, like he literally says like, Oh, the doctor's rubbish. Like you would just have the faith that you will get better. Yeah. But that also does get challenged and changes at the end, which we will talk about. But as of right now, you know, Hugh is, he's bedridden, but then he is able to walk again. But the way he then experiences life, he has, you know, he, he reads what he calls the noble books and that, and at the time that included, you know, treasure Island, Ivanhoe among any other, uh, other books but so he really dives deep into into novels and and letting that experience and and those stories to help him through uh what what he was going through which is a it's pretty depressing to have to go through that and it's pretty traumatic and his mother you know she was i think the, the only way they were able to communicate between him and his mother because they're both bedridden was tapping the ceiling which i just felt so heartwarming and then when they finally get to meet again and see each other again after a few months that I'm just like crying because it's such a beautiful idea and scene uh, just to bring them back together. And then that culminates in uh, when basically the sons then come back into the house because uh, they are no longer feuding with their father. And that's another touching scene because they each kiss their mother on the cheek as they walk in and the town is singing for her. Uh, So it's a very, it starts out, you know, the whole sequence, I guess, starts out very, you know, sad and depressing that this woman has to go out there to defend her husband because the, the people like wanted to kill him and get rid of him, but then they all come together to, to really just celebrate them at the end. Uh, it's really, it's really nice. And, and it brings again, that sense of community and, and coming togetherness, that whole theme and idea back to the forefront of the film. So something we haven't talked too much about is, well, obviously we talked a little bit about cinematography kind of setting up the town and how beautiful it is, but this film is all in black and white. And to me, I just found it interesting with a film called How Green Was My Valley, that there's no color in it, right? And we see these hills and beautiful, like, Mother Nature, which we can see is gorgeous. The sun's shining. They use such great, like, contrast, and the lighting is phenomenal in this movie where it's, like, the dark kind of absorbs characters and rooms, and the beautiful shining light is just, like, this contrast where it's just, like, it's this area so beautiful, yet we're, like destroying it we're like instead of spending all our time on these beautiful valleys and these beautiful hills no we're going down into the dirt we're going down so far into the ground uh until we die basically so it's it's very much in line with hugh's point of the point of view and his themes and how he's kind of torn from one side to the other and also how the town's kind of slowly deteriorating but i found it interesting that this film wasn't in color at all what do you think ben yeah, I certainly, uh, I, yeah, it was certainly interesting because you know that Technicolor was a thing and and then researching upon it, we found out a pretty interesting idea. So, or not idea, I guess, fact about the film. Uh, anyway, so the film was actually intended to be a, I guess, a rival, if you'll call it, to Gone with the Wind, like a reaction to it. Uh, and because of the impending war, and they were actually, because of the World War II about to happen, they couldn't film in Wales like they had originally intended. The movie was intended to be four hours, and it was intended to be filmed in Technicolor. And William Wyler was actually intended to be the first, the the main director on the film. But then he left when some of these production issues happened, and then the studio brought in John Ford. And he was like, "Okay, we're filming in California. You're going to build me this Welsh town in in the valleys, and uh, we're going to film in black and white." And they kind of had to roll with it. So yeah, it's devoid of color, and you wish you could have that in the film does it ruin the film itself i don't think so but it it is a little funny that you know the whole movie's called how green was my valley and there's no green at all in it 
But again, again, I guess that also might play into the whole idea that this is flashbacks and this is memory. And yeah, I hadn't thought about that. I, honestly, I think this film being black and white only helps it. Honestly, not only is it that kind of sensation of wanting to know what these actual locations look like, seeing these beautiful hills and these beautiful shots, you're like, oh man, like. It's so beautiful without color. I can't even imagine it with color. It's almost like it draws you in more. It makes you question. It makes you like wonder, why is this in black and white? If the title's got green in it, if this movie's kind of about Mother Nature, if it's about this world that's losing it, it's like, how are you really going to feel that deterioration? And John Ford is probably saying to himself, no, we can show that. It's in our characters. It's in our script. You can see the, how the world changes, how people start to become corrupt when their life gets taken from them, when money gets taken from them, when the mind slowly just dies out over time. So I found it so powerful. And then, of course, like I was saying, with the themes and Hugh kind of like balancing on losing his innocence. And it just feels like the whole town is about that as well, about like losing itself because it's just become so overly used and just losing track of really what makes it beautiful and it's that mother nature it's this connection with your local townsmen and i just it being in black and white obviously we have this amazing cinematography being in the mines and just how beautiful it is under there with like the very limited lighting i just it's gorgeous i think it's hands down one of the best films best looking films that we've seen so far yeah it's i think it is too i actually really love the cinematography and uh and the whole feel and look of it but yeah i it's devoid of color and it's an interesting dynamic to play around with, but I think it's, it works still. I, you know, it obviously still works for us. Um, and there's even, you know, you're talking about it for environmental sense of like how these, the community changes. I mean, it's also a political thing where these people who wanted, who were so willing to work in the coal mine, it's such like a, it's so foreign for me. And, and that's hand up. That's my own privilege, I guess, that I didn't have to work in a coal mine or didn't have to grow up in a community. Certainly. Yeah. You know, like that. But I also can understand that there are all, there are all these people who didn't get the education that, that we got, that didn't go to school, but were, able, but were willing to sacrifice their bodies and their whole entire lives just to feel good that they were working a job that they were just putting in hard work every day, which was, which was a, an, an ideal thing for them that that was something that they strive for. So that is lost throughout the film. And even the, the older Hugh narrates that, that multiple times saying like that was gone. There are people in the Valley who don't have that anymore. The people in the Valley realize that they're no longer gonna be able to have the life that they once lived. Uh, it, it's just something that he reflects on to himself and it's uh, yeah, it's extremely powerful. Also, there's there's kind of repeating imagery throughout the film, right? Since it's taking place in this same town, we're getting re- repeats, right? And it's taking place in the mine as well. So we start to like pick up on these trends, you know, when when we hear the kind of insane alarm that goes off when there's an accident in the mine, it's like haunting, right? And yeah. We hear it, I think, three times maybe, maybe just twice uh, throughout the film, but it's like you're almost anticipating it and it almost feels like horror films at, at in a certain moment. And I feel the same way kind of about the, the not the mine carts, but the like the mine elevator shafts, right? Yeah. Where it's just like John Ford wants to focus on the elevator shaft, especially at the very end and, and other scenes where you're just like waiting to see what comes up. You're like, what the fuck happened yeah. down there? It's like this anticipation that just comes from a story about being down below where it's like you don't get to see it down there in the mine all the all, all the time right it's from uh, a lot of the times it's from the perspective above ground more so than it is below ground so when you have that anticipation of like what's coming from down below it's 
it's haunting honestly there was like noises and images that really stuck with me throughout this film yeah and and again that has to go back to the whole set and location exactly uh, of the film and it's almost as if you're living in this it's almost as if like you're in heaven and it's like this great thing and everything is grand around you but there's just this hole right over there hell down yeah you see that hole you go in that hole and and shit is going to be different yeah it's it's hell down there and you can die and so for there's even a moment where uh when Hugh is coming back up after working and the coal mines for a day where he can like breathe the fresh air where it's like oh i'm out of this uh and it's it it adds more to that idea and dynamic of the set being its own character and because you you feel for it you understand it you've just because the way that, that that Ford is able to work with just in the one setting of the whole for the film, you get all these different shots. Nothing ever feels repetitive. Like there's never a look that it, I wouldn't say isn't intended that is repeated because there are stuff that is intended and repeated, but that's to evoke other things uh, when capturing the world. But he does such a good job about moving the camera around and, making sure it really captures everything to your imagination of that specific setting. Yeah. A lot of really still shots where he just wants to focus on this. Also, we haven't talked too much about this, but since there's a lot of groups of people, there's like the scenes with all the family. So there's a lot of people in their family, like John Ford, not seeing, you know, only seeing probably four of his films. He's amazing at blocking scenes, the way that his camera is so static, but the scenes feel engaging and, um, especially at the dining room table, you have all these characters getting up, moving around. The camera's still static, but it just feels so natural. And you're like, yeah. you feel like you're still engaged. It's not boring you that you're seeing the same shot still because the actors are, are moving and blocking and they're, they're just so dynamic and engaging. So that's something that I want, want to give a shout out. And you also mentioned Hugh being in the mines, which is a huge kind of shift in his character, right? His family wants him to be the son that gets out, the son that kind of becomes greater than this town could ever be. They want him to become a a doctor. Exactly. They want him to grow and and be bigger than just a coal miner's son that also is a coal miner, right? And it's so tragic when you just see him down there and it's like the point of view shot of the mine cart, which is like, again, that's what this film constantly does is show you beautiful imagery, but it's like haunting imagery. It's like shit that shouldn't look this good. It's so sad, like seeing him push his cart along underground, you know? Yeah, Yeah, and... and, uh you know, his father was did not want him to do that. And when he does decide that he's going to do that, it, his mother is actually ecstatic because he's not leaving. Yeah. But then Willem, like, Willem is leaving and Beth goes, where are you going? And he goes, I'm going to get drunk and just slams <laughs> the door. And it's, uh, yeah, it, it's sad. And, you know, I don't know why. Like, I wonder, I guess Hugh decided to go down to the colliery just because he felt that he had to because he wanted to provide for Bronwyn yeah, in a sense, but like it, yeah. he had an out and it's, it's just such a quick decision that he makes where it's like, like, okay, Hugh, you can do this. You can go off and become a doctor, but, or you can stay and he decides to stay and there's no real big picture reason like why he decides to say he never takes a second to think about it. I mean, he is a little kid. I mean, yeah. Again, like there's not much, there's no like time cards to say how much time has passed. But I think maybe that when the film starts, he's ten. Maybe at this point, he's twelve or thirteen. And I, I wish there was some, you know, discussion about that. You know, that he was able to actually think about it. But instead, he just says, "Fuck it, I'm gonna go into the coal mines and just sacrifice myself." But then, obviously, 
And we actually don't know how his whole life ended up being because we don't know what the older Hugh did. They just say he's no, older. He just leaves. That's all you really yeah. know. He's we, gathering his things. Yeah, but we don't. Yeah, we don't know what his life ended up being. So it's hard to then say like, oh, well, he got out. We don't know if he got out at the end, like from the coal mine, even when his brother and his father died in it. Yeah, it's really interesting, and I think we this is the perfect time to kind of hit on. There are there are some elements that I think are weaker elements of this film, and it doesn't really feel like anything's at fault. It just feels, again, kind of like with Rebecca, it just feels like there's limitations of trying to adapt this from a novel, a novel that's probably very long, spans decades, and that's really hard to portray in film, and, and to do it in a two-hour span. is It's really difficult. I think this film does a phenomenal job of really giving all these characters the time of day and the time of light, and and really showing you the whole town at the same time while still each giving these characters themes and, and motivations. But there are jumps where you're like, okay, like I wish I had a little bit more of that. Like I wish there's some more um, information of like of Hugh. And I wish the, the, we haven't talked too much about like the love story in this film. I wish that was just a little more in depth and they had a little more screen time together. But what did you think of the, the forbidden romance, the love in this <laughs> film? Yeah, that was an, another, I think, just a small issue for me because I wish there was more because it, it's really not much of an interaction between uh, Mr. Griffith and, and uh, Anne Harrod. We actually don't even have Mr. Griffith's first name. I keep on calling him you know, Mr. Griffith. I'm like, what's his first name? Uh, but I don't know if they the, ever say they it. Ne- they? they never say it. I think Maureen O'Hara is like stunning in this movie. Oh like, yeah. She's beautiful. She's like so charming. But again, I just don't think we get enough of her to like really feel the ending is satisfying with them coming together. Yeah, no, you, you definitely don't. Um, but there, there is a really powerful scene where, uh, where they are, where it is Anne Harrod and, and Mr. Griffith talking to each other. And the way it, it's set up at first is actually really, uh, really well done because Mr. Griffith enters his home and it's this like low angle shot where he's lighting a match to give light to the room. So actually the whole room, it, I guess that was the only light source for that scene. That's what it, it didn't look like someone just flipped on a light when his when the when the flame got you know was was flame was turned on. I didn't want to see the flame was turned on. The, the flame was lit. The flame was lit. <laughs> it was lit. Anyways, though, uh, it uh, it then you reveal that Anne Harrod was sitting in the dark, and uh, Mr. Griffith is like shocked by this, and it's again these low angle shots where he just perfect shot choices around the room where. You get a good sense of the room. You see this, like, I want to say it's horror, but this, like, panic-stricken face on Mr. on Walter Pigeon's Mr. Griffith's face where he's just like, whoa, 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 you shouldn't be here, and this isn't, like, the right thing to do. Um, so Mr. Griffith says you shouldn't be here, and Harrod goes, I couldn't spend another night without knowing what has happened. Is anything wrong? Mr. Griffith, wrong? And Harrod, you know what I mean. Why have you changed towards me? Why am I a stranger now? Have I done anything? Griffin, no, the blame is mine. Your mother spoke to me after chapel. She's happy to think you will be having plenty all your days. Uh, Anne Harrod goes, in a scornful way, I asked in Evans, Mr. Griffith, you could do no better. And Harrod, I don't want him. I want you. And then this is the pretty much the, the pinnacle of the whole scene. Mr. Griffith goes, and Harrod, I spent nights too trying to think this out. When I took up this work, I knew what it meant. It meant sacrifice and devotion and making it my whole life the exclusion of everything else that I was perfectly willing to do, but to share it with another, do you think I'll have you going threadbare all your life, depending on the charity of others for your good meals, our children growing up in cast off clothing and ourselves thanking God for parenthood in a house full of bits. 
No, I can bear with such a life for the sake of my work, but I think I would start to kill if I saw the white come to your hair 20 years before it's time. And Herod goes, why? Why would you start to kill? Are you a man or a saint? And Mr. Griffith ends with, go, I am no saint, but I have a duty towards you. Let me do it. And that what really, you know, even right now, just reading that and then thinking about Walter Pigeon's performance is such, it's so powerful, you know, that line. But I think I would start to kill if I saw the white come to your hair 20 years before it's time. It, it, I just, it really is like a shock to like hear, not, not a shock where I'm like, whoa, how could you say that? But just like, whoa, like pulls you right out. And you really get this like huge emotional feel for his character and that he's really been thinking about, like, I could love her and I could have her. But to make her live the life that I live wouldn't be fair to her because he calls her a queen at some point, like earlier on in the film. He really thinks highly of her. And uh, uh, I didn't know what you thought of that scene, but that that speech is one of my favorites from the from the film. Yeah, extremely powerful. It's the dialogue in this in this movie is is so fucking good that like it makes me want to immediately restart it just because I'm like, I missed stuff. Like the characters are talking, not only are they talking fast still, but we have like such nuanced dialogue that is like just hit after hit after hit. And you're like, Oh my God, there is so much to unpack here. Like I need to pause and rewatch this scene because it's just so in depth in terms of like the, the subtle language that they're playing with each other. Like the, the forbiddenness of like not wanting to cross that line, but also telling her like I'm madly in love with you without like revealing to the whole town. Really, really hard to write stuff like that. And, And, it really just hits the nail on the head. The, the script is like honestly almost perfect in the way that the the characters have this very natural dialogue, but it's also very telling and revealing of uh, each character. Yeah, I felt I was writing down almost every line just because I was like, oh, that was good, that was good, and that was good. And uh, so what kind of happens then after this is that Aunt Herod does marry uh, E.S. and Evans. And what so this is one of those instances where Ford paralleled uh, two scenes together, actually three scenes, uh, I'll explain in a second, of using the town and, and shot. So how he parallels it with the chapel is that when Ivor and Bronwyn get married, it's this low angle shot of them all coming out and it's very happy and joyous. And there's, uh, I think there's rice being thrown around. He, actually, yeah, there is rice being thrown around because Mr. Griffith throws rice at Anne Harrod yeah. during that. So the, like that's really great. But then what's mirrored is then when Anne Harrod gets married, there's just silence and it's very somber she's not happy you can tell uh it's just, i don't even know if this was intentional if it's just because they were filming at such a high point in uh you know in location but her wedding veil just kept getting blown up in the wind and it just looks so cool and like interesting that you know her yeah that scene where yeah. her veil blows yeah, up yeah so the, the yeah. yeah the veil so the veil is uh the veil is blowing up in the, in the wind and then it has to be brought down by Evans. But then in the background, you see Mr. Griffith standing there just like, fuck, like I should have done something. And then because of the silence, uh, Gwilym goes to die Bondo and he's just like, is there going to be no singing on my daughter's wedding day? And the song they sing is the same song that at the beginning of the film, when they're celebrating the wedding of Bronwyn and Ivor, uh, they are that's when miss that's when mr griffin and harrod first meet they're singing together you know this song it's the same exact song interesting i did not pick up on that at all so i can say with the veil it was a lot of people's impression that that was just something that happened on the day of got some lucky wind 
But I saw a little tidbit where John Ford specifically wanted that to happen, and there was oh like a, really? Yeah, there was a huge like fan uh, on set that would blow her veil up like as soon as she hit that mark on set. So it was really cool. Just like that small detail of someone wanting to plan wow. that out is, is fascinating. I'm, I'm really glad that, that that was actually picked out and not just a coincidence. Because yeah. it was a coincidence, it's like a beautiful coincidence. But to yeah. actually have that as a thing means that there's some significance to it that I am just not able to pick up on right now. Like why it could just be the intimacy that he wishes he had with her, or just like another rub into him but, wanting but to what be is with the her. Veil, but the veil blowing in the wind, I guess that's because it's not the traditional where it flows. It's being blown up. Yeah. Like it's not proper. Like it shouldn't be happening or maybe yeah. it's a sign that this is not the right person to be with. I don't know. Yeah. I, I think, I think it's very plausible. Uh, so it, that's, that's a great, you know, dynamic and, and subplots of the film and Walter Pigeon and Maria O'Hara give great performances. And what is then kind of different when thinking about one of the other main characters is then Donald Crisp as Gwillem. And I really want to focus on him because to me, this performance, and we sort of talked about it with him being stern or not stern. I thought his performance really is the best of the film. And he doesn't like say too much. There's no like prolific supporting actor monologue that he gets that is like, man, that's it. That, like, that's why he won the Oscar. Yeah, exactly. Spoiler alert. He, he won the Oscar <laughs> <laughs> for this, but regardless it, uh, he, he just gives such a great performance. And I feel like most of that has to do with his physical, you know, abilities and he doesn't do anything like grand, but it's such so nuanced. And so it's so tiny, like so many tiny details that he puts into his performance from a physical standpoint, that really stands out to me. One that really immediately stands out is when, um, is when his two two of his sons are going to leave for America. I think this is when Owen and Gwillem say they're they're leaving, and uh, so he's like, "Okay, we're gonna throw a party. We're gonna throw a party because Ivor." We didn't get. I don't think that was even the synopsis. So Ivor gets invited by the Queen of England to sing. Yeah. <laughs> like he has a choir to sing uh-huh. at at Windsor Castle, which is like, whoa, like that's like kind of a cool, you know, thing to just throw in there. Uh, but he says like, okay, we're going to throw a party worthy of the Morgans. And then all of a sudden he just gets quiet and he just like almost comes back to himself and just realizes I'm losing two of my sons and we're going to have a celebration, but I'm losing two of my sons. And it's such a, such an interesting and impactful decision, like an acting decision on his end. And then, you know what you said one of your favorite lines is when uh you know all the sons leave and and Hugh is sitting at the dinner table just trying to make noise to get his father's attention and he just sets with his head's down yes my son i know you're there and just the delivery and and, and the timing and again just the putting the head down not looking up it it's so effective and and that's why i really love his performance yeah it's a lot of non-verbal performance but like the the lines he does say are like so impactful like you know uh, it kind of reminds me of my grandpa. Like he wouldn't say many things, but you know, as soon as he started talking, like shut up, like everyone, everyone <laughs> needs to listen yeah. to what he's about to say. Cause it's probably going to be uh, really interesting and really impactful in our lives. So I think we could all see that in uh, kind of not just our father figures, but our grandfathers or, or people that we've met along the way that are kind of like inspiring to us. Um, yeah, such a powerful performance. Uh, Donald Chris as Mr. Morgan, as well as Roddy McDowell, are, I think are the two shining performances for me, just because I think a lot of the film is about both of them and, and their relationship with the town. But yeah, uh, honestly, amazing. I really love their two performances. Totally worthy of, of winning, as we'll get to. Yeah, so there's actually a kind of another good jumping off point to talk about another actor, and that's Roddy McDowell. And he 
you know, he really is the lead in the, in the sense of the film. There's no, like, that was another question I had for you is like, who is the main lead character? And I guess we could say Hugh because it's Hugh's story. It's his perspective on the film. But Roddy McDowell, he, I was a child at the time. He became a much more prominent star later on in his life. Uh, and supposedly the original plan was to have the first half be played by McDowell in this film. And then it would time jump to an adult version uh, of Hugh played by Tyrone Power. But the idea was scrapped by the producer, Dowell Zanuck and uh, others involved in the film process. They were like, we'll just have Roddy McDowell because he was just such a great, he did so well in his screen test and they felt that he could really lead the film. And I thought as a child actor to have to, to go through all this and, and to carry a lot of this film it was really good. It was really powerful. I, there's, I have been child stars who have won, but like at that age to really kind of command like the, what is needed for this film to succeed is I thought was really great. Well, how like dark of a performance it is like the, the tragedy that he has to go through, like the physical tragedy onto himself, but is losing his brother or losing uh, other people in his family and seeing him slowly transition and, I keep thinking of the like the point of view from the mine cart when he like decides to have to start working in the mine and like his just face like he's not even saying a yeah. word he's just like he's like dead inside and I'm like I don't know how they convinced this eight year old or what they told <laughs> him what John Ford told him to get that sort of look in two or three takes like it's unbelievable it's like the magic must have really come together for this cast because I yeah. It's hard to believe. I, it, it is. I mean, that's hard to believe. And then when you go into the whole, when he goes to school and, and that torture he had to go through because he was beat by a classmate, then he takes up boxing and then he beats the other kid up because he's such a great boxer. And then the, the teacher literally whips him and like lashes him with like, I guess it's not a whip. It's a walking cane. Yeah. He got caned. I guess that's the proper phrasing God. for it. Uh, but that was a thing teachers did back then. And, uh, so like he just had to go through that. Uh, actually, a funny thing about that is that he gets caned and then he goes back and his brothers see him, and his brothers are like, "Hey, Hugh, what's going on?" And then Hugh just collapses and then they pick him up and they're like, "Oh my God, they did this to you!" Not revealing like what it looked like, and then they pick him up and you they can turn see it, yeah. and they turn around, but it's just a, there's nothing on his back, so there's no makeup actually yeah. done, which I thought was a little goofy and kind of a. An oversight potentially that only just, two to three takes. We yeah, ain't got time for yeah. that. We don't have time. We just gotta go right through it. <laughs> Keep on moving. Yeah, but again, like Rodney McDowell, just like I, I, you had like really three strong performances at so at different, I guess like acting techniques or levels because you had Walter Pigeon who was mostly dialogue and and how his performance was so you know predicated on him having these like really prolific uh, speeches and and conversations. You then go to like Donald Crisp and how he's more of a physical and just the emotions that come across him. And then Ronnie McDowell as Hugh being able to just to command, uh, you know, the screen like that, you know, it, it's just such interesting dynamics out uh, in the film. And, and there's so much more that gets played on. There's a, there's a really uh, good scene with Mr. Uh, Griffith and Ianto, one of the brothers, uh, when they're talking about the chapel and, and this whole like, I guess for me growing up Jewish, the whole like Catholicism and an idea of the, the, the church being such a central part of your life is I, I guess foreign to me. So every time I watch films, it's, it's very interesting that whole dynamic because I come at it from a very different perspective. Uh, but I really want to talk about this specific uh, back and forth. Cause I thought the, the screenwriting was really rich. Um, so Mr. Riffer goes to Yanta. He goes, why do you think we, have, we of the chapel talk rubbish? Yanta, my remark was not aimed at you. He was, talking uh to the uh one of the deacons and 
the mine owners about how screwed up they are. And then Griffith asks, well, then aim it. Aim it at like what you want to talk about. And the answer goes very well. Because you make yourselves out to be shepherds of the flock, and yet you allow your sheep to live in filth and poverty, and if they try and raise their voices against it, you calm them by telling them their suffering is the will of God. Sheep indeed. Are we sheep to be herded and sheared by a handful of owners? I was taught man was made in the image of God, not a sheep. And uh, I just thought that was a very interesting uh interesting quote and and moment in the film when talking about the chapel because that almost plants an idea in Mr. Griffith's head where this where the film ends and well, I'll get to that speech in a second where this whole idea uh, of God being this like very prevalent part of the town and way of life is it's almost screwed up because it's like yeah like God is great and God is good to these people but then when you have like the mine owner or the mine accidents happening and killing Ivor and, and, and Gwillem, it's like, wh- what's the fucking point of praying if we're just going to die in this pit? There's nothing. We're just being shepherded into into our death. It's definitely plants a seed in Griffith's head, like the way he thinks about you know, his love for that forbidden love that he has that he shouldn't be crossing the line for and also just makes him question his kind of belief and understanding of what God wants for humanity and for humans. It's again, there's just so many different themes that this film explores. You could say that it doesn't explore all of them as, as deep as it should, but the amount, it really kind of dives deep into these different themes, whether it's God, religion, you know, environmental, the masculinity, like picking between mother and father, like so many of these aspects are so deeply explored. And yeah, it's something that we haven't talked too much about is, is his struggle with faith. I wish there was a little bit more with him kind of like personally struggling with that to kind of get more of a satisfying ending out of his turn that leads into the the scene that you're about to talk to now. Cause I, I think that could be a little bit more impactful than uh, it ended up being for me. Cause I, at that point I was just really concerned about Hugh and his story. Yeah. I, it, it is sort of glossed over and, and just covers up so many different ideas and being there. It's such a political environmental religious themed film without being like heavy handed. Yeah. It's not heavy handed at all. It it challenges all of them. And it it's, it's, it's what makes it again, like a very successful film. And, um, and, and it leads to this, this whole climax of the film. And it's like several moments that are like the climax of the film. So everyone hears about, so Anne Harrod comes back from, she's in Cape town with her husband and she's back and everyone's like, well, why is she back? And then they're the housemaid of that, of, of Anne Harrod's house basically reveals that she's going to get a divorce because she doesn't love, uh, Iaston Evans, but she actually wants to be Mr. Griffith. And, and then th- those rumors get spread around. Hugh is mocked because of it. And he actually has to defend his sister. Uh, and then essentially Mr. Griffith is, uh, he's going to be just kicked out of the town and out of the valley by the deacons of the church. And it's, 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 it's sad because you're like, well, they, all they want to do is just love each other. And it's not like anything. There's like, what's so blasphemous about a preacher wanting just to marry someone like, yeah, it's divorce. But that, not, not, again, that's such a foreign idea. It's such an old way of living that to talk about it now, you know, in 2021 is like, what the fuck? Like who, well, in a way it's still really prevalent, you know, breaking and leaving as a pastor, not as a pastor, but as someone in Catholicism, you can't, you know, as, He's not a priest, or is he a priest? He is a priest, right? 
I think he's a preacher, and just again, a preacher. But I this mean, is where I wouldn't know this. That's, I I don't like. I know that there are people who can be like preachers, but they can get married, but priests can't get married. So, okay, I'm not that knowledgeable, but <laughs> I'll I'll go through my own history of religion. So I grew up with Christianity in my life. It wasn't Catholicism for sure, but it was uh, Lutheran Christianity. So. For us, you could have pastors that could get married, but I know for strict Catholicism, um, th- that's just not possible, right? You're, you're supposed to be married to God, essentially. You're not supposed to break that kind of sacred bond that you have, and uh, coming together with a woman is kind of... Even in my church, in my Lutheran church, I had a, a preacher there who left um, a Catholic church because he wanted to get married. He found the love of his life, and he was a Catholic priest, and he was just like, hmm. No, like I, I, I want to be with this person. She's more important to me than God or maybe God sent her to me. So, yeah, well, then he's definitely a pastor or a preacher because he definitely seems like he could get married because he says to Anne Harrod, like, I've thought about it, but he doesn't want to subject her to that because he thinks she's better than that. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, so he's probably a a preacher. Uh, But but moving on. So basically he's going to get kicked out and. Hugh goes, Hugh finds out about this thing that's going to happen at the chapel. So he's the only member of the Morgan family that actually goes. Uh, the His father and mother kind of make a, they say to him, like, we're not going to go and Harrod's not going to be there. It's just, they're almost defeated that, like, they used to be so involved in, in the chapel and, and the church. And, and now they seem almost like we don't even want to care about it because... We didn't do anything wrong and we're being subjected to it. But so this is a, a really great speech and a really great monologue and kind of the, the true big meaty monologue of the whole entire film. So Mr. Griffith is standing up uh, at the top of the church, uh, you know, standing at a podium, and he goes, this is the last time I will talk in this chapel. I am leaving the valley with regret. So almost like another reference to the whole monologue, I am leaving my valley. I am leaving the valley with regret towards those who have helped me here and have let me help them. But for the rest of you, those of you who have only proved that I have wasted my time among you, I have only this to say. There is not one among you who had the courage to come to me and accuse me of wrongdoing. And yet by any standard, if there has been a sin, I am the one who should be branded the sinner. Will anyone raise his voice here now to accuse me? No, you're cowards too, as well as hypocrites. But I don't blame you. The fault is mine as much as yours. The idle tongues, the poverty of mind, which you have shown mean that I have failed to reach most of you with the lesson I was given to teach. He then walks up to the back of the chapel to where Hugh is seated. And he goes, Hugh, I thought when I was a young man that I would conquer the world with truth. I thought I would lead an army greater than Alexander ever dreamed of, not to conquer nations, but to liberate mankind with truth, with the golden sound of the word. But only a few of them heard. Only a few of you understood. And he turns back to the rest of the congregation with these words saying, The rest of you put on black and satin chapel. Why do you come here? Why do you dress your hypocrisy in black and parade before your God on Sunday from love? No, for you have shown that your hearts are too withered to receive the love of your divine father. I know why you have come. I have seen it in your faces Sunday after Sunday as I've stood here before you. Fear has brought you here. Horrible, superstitious fear, fear of divine retribution, a bolt of fire from the skies, the vengeance of the Lord and the justice of God. But you have forgotten the love of Jesus. You disregard his sacrifice, death, fear, flames, horror, and black clothes. Hold your meeting then, but know if you do this in the name of God, in the house of God, 
you blasphemy against him and his word and he just walks right out and to me you know i love this i thought this was so fucking great because he's there is again like going back to towards the beginning of the film that whole idea of the sheep versus god that whole idea comes right back and he challenges it and he's not and he's still a faithful person but he's calling out the people that that say that they're the faithful ones and saying that they're not and that he's disappointed and he knows and recognizes that he has failed at his job to an extent but he knows that's also not his fault that he has failed and there is just uh, there's so many things that he says there that just made me really just like I, it was like I was like watching the Mets you know win a game you know I was like <laughs> that's what you're gonna relate this to that's no, what you're gonna relate to? I don't have anything better to relate it to right now honestly <laughs> but just to say that like yeah like let's fucking go because like that was really good like that was so powerful and impactful and to kind of almost capstone his whole performance of that although there's a little bit more that happens. But this is like the big one of the big uh, conflicts and and pinnacles of the film. It's just like, oh, my God, like he just he doesn't care anymore. And he's willing to say, like, fuck you to the congregation. Like, fuck you for doing this to, to the whole town. Yeah. Fuck you. Like, yeah. it doesn't matter. Like, I don't you can't control my decisions and God can't control my decisions either. Like yeah. he's pushing beyond those boundaries and beyond that pressure. I think he has on himself to, to be something that. I don't know. I guess the world just told him to be that God he thinks has told him to be. So yeah, again, so, so powerful and such a great performance. And what a, what a just like phenomenal scene. It's like a scene where like a bride runs away from the, the altar actually, but it's just, he's running away from like preconceived notions of the town of God. And yeah, it's this, so, such a powerful moment. This just came to me and maybe I'm just talking on my butt right here, but this feels very Joker. Like, this whole speech and just this whole idea that it's pointing the fingers at everyone else. And, and for someone like the, and I'm not saying that Walter pigeon or this (laughs) character is like the Joker, but I'm just saying like that whole idea just felt very Joker like, and it felt very, just let me point out the, the nuances that you think you're right, but in reality you're wrong. Yeah. Trying to like uncover, like, you know, peel away the layers of, of something that no one wants to really admit or, or really see what it is truthfully. Yeah, I, I could see that in a way. It's hard not to see all the other elements of Joker <laughs> when you say that. But yeah, in terms of like that, wanting to like not break society, but just kind of like show the real cracks in society and say like, hey, you know, we're just, we have one life. We're one person. Like you should follow things that, that makes your heart happy. Yeah. So the, so that ends. And then uh, you see Mr. Griffith writing a note, probably Dan Harrod saying he's going to leave, but Hugh comes in because Hugh also leaves the chapel and um, Mr. Griffith, he is telling Hugh essentially goodbye. And he has this one line going, we will live in the minds of each other. And he's going to give Hugh this golden watch that uh, he was given by his own father when he was leaving to become a preacher. And then we hear the whistle. We hear that horrific sound that there is another accident. And all of a sudden when you, when they step outside, you see this, what, it's supposed to be a green valley, even though it's in black and white. You see this beautiful valley all of a sudden just covered in smoke and it's black smoke. And you know, there was an accident, you know, something bad like just happened. So again, we're playing with the location, the set and the world of the film again, being turned over and what becomes probably the most jarring thing. And the thing that really is impactful as a scene and, and setting is you see the coal mine essentially blow up. You just see a big, you know, 
pillar of flame come out from the hole where the mine shaft is. And that's when you're like, oh shit, this like really important set, this really important idea for the film that this town is where the central idea is. Think of it like a play. If something was just sitting there the whole time and then just all of a sudden just blows up in the last 10 minutes of the play, you'd be like, whoa, that just changes my whole perspective of what I was just watching. And it it's extremely powerful. And, and, and so Hugh and, and Mr. Griffith run up and then they start hearing that, that Gwillem is not back up there. And so... Uh, and then they go down into the mine shaft. So uh, Mr. Griffith goes with Hugh and Dibondo. Um, and there's actually this really touching moment where in Harrod, she runs, she's running across the like blackened and smoky land in like this beautiful dress that she was in because she knows that there was an accident. And she's holding uh, Mr. Griffith's hand as they're going down the mine shaft. And uh, she just whispers, come back. You can just see her. It's not even like audible. You just see her whisper, say to him, like, come back. And he just like shakes his head and then, uh, he, they just go down in the mine shaft, and then, as you're saying before, it's just like such a. I, it's it's so hard to call it beautiful, but it's haunting. It's hauntingly beautiful how the mine shaft was filmed. Yeah, how it's filmed, how they're trying to like find the bodies from the rubble down there, and it's it makes it even more tragic that like it seems like the end is coming to the film, and it seems like oh, this is the twist of the movie. Like it's about this like. I keep saying forbidden love, but this forbidden love that comes together and, you know, that's that kind of happy ending, you know, things have changed, but then boom, that like crazy whistle, that haunting whistle comes and it's slowly, it's just haunting. And then we get the shot of them waiting for the elevator to come and he, Ford just takes his time. He's just like yeah. letting the elevator slowly come up and he knows that it's like drawing out so much tension and, and suspense. Uh, like we talked last week with, um, with Hitchcock and how, how well he knows how to like um, build that suspense up and really draw that emotion out of the audience. And I think the same thing's happening here as we're waiting for that to come up and then seeing the reveal of a Hugh holding his father's body. And it's just like, you can see like that's the final straw, like of his innocence completely losing. Oh yeah. What's going to happen to Hugh after this is really up for like the audience to kind of determine and figure out. But like, this is the moment and this kind of seems to be the final nail in the coffin of what, kind of breaks him as a child what is the final last straw yeah it's uh it's extremely sad you know i don't want to cry just thinking about it but when he finds his father you know like Willem is just like pinned between like two rocks essentially and he just says uh, it's something to the effect of like hugh like i hear you and he says you're a good old man and then hugh hugs him and then he just dies yeah. you know right in his arms and that has to be it's extremely traumatic for Hugh. And again, yeah, it's like that last straw, uh, last straw on the camel's back to really just break it. And, uh, it, it's a very impactful and emotional ending to, to this, to this film that uh, was full of, of crazy peaks and valleys, you know, of, of emotions. And it ends on this line. And we said it when we were reading the synopsis, but I wanted to say it again. So the voiceover comes back and it, it's just a shot of, of Rowdy McDowell, of Hugh holding his father who's dead in his hand in the, in the mine uh, elevator. And the narrator goes, men like my father cannot die. They are with me still real in memory as they were in flesh, loving and beloved forever. How green was my Valley then. And then the film ends with these images of happier, more idyllic days. And then it's like crescendo of like all the voices of the singing that you hear throughout the town, all in Welsh, by the way. And you get, you know, repeats of, of certain scenes of the Morgan family at summertime. Hugh first seeing Braun, 
uh, and Harrod at the gate watching him wave at Mr. Griffith, and then Hugh returning on the hillside with the flowers bo- uh, blooming, and he's with his father walking hand in hand, and then they see their brothers, and then the film fades to black and the end. And it's such a such a powerful thing, and and it again harkens back to that whole idea that this was just in the older Hughes you know mind that he was looking back on this like grander time and 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 the, the words are really true that mr griffith said to him that uh we will now live in forever in each other's minds that these people this glory of of hugh's past and in his valley was such a it was so important to him and then to see it all just go away as the years go on was probably extremely depressing and heartbreaking and and that's why i think that because of the time where when this film came out the time it just seems like it has to have been when World War II was starting, when England was being bombed by, uh, or the UK was being bombed by uh, by the Germans in World War II. Just it really has to that has to be the reason why he leaves, as well as you know the coal mining destroying the town. But I just feel like that's why he has to leave, which is sadder to think about that because we don't. It's so open ended, like what ends up happening. Yeah, it's it's hard to know. I think that. That adds to the film in a way, though. I think knowing the true ending, him saying something, or his voiceover kind of indicating what's happening or where his life goes, I think kind of it hurts it in a way. It adds context that I think is not needed. I think leaving the ending open-ended, but also it's complete to his story and his character, so it doesn't feel open-ended. I think that's the best way to have an open-ending where us as the viewers, we're stuck with him. We, like, see his last kind of face, his reaction, like him grown up and leaving we don't even see his face it's just his hands it's like an older older man's hands um or young man he's not an old man at that point but and it just leaves it to the audience right so it's up up to us to really dive deeper into the film and kind of think about the possibilities and yeah thinking also that it could be world war ii is like way more tragic or maybe he's leaving to just go to a bigger city have a better life like it's it's so up in the air it's hard to really know and that makes it in a way more powerful yet even almost more tragic in a way yeah he's like leaving behind this uh this like garden of eden almost like that's what it felt like that this place was eden and that it was such a great place and then it just gets destroyed by mankind's own doing which i think is really several of the, the ideas is that mankind giveth and mankind taketh you know where you know with they give religion, they give religion, but then it's dictated. And then Mr. Griffin has to leave and he gives that wonderful speech at the end that they need this power to like, you know, make the whole town go, but then they destroy it by taking all the coal out of the earth. Um, this movie has so many nuances in it. It's such a deep film, but, and yet it's such a simple story that, uh, which makes it like great in and of itself. So I think we've really covered the whole idea and the big picture uh, themes of How Green Was My Valley. Um, we truly enjoyed it, but we should definitely talk about the Academy Awards from that year. The fourth Academy Awards were held on February 26, 1942 in the Coconut Grove at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles, California. The Academy Awards were hosted by Bob Hope and documentary category was added this year as well. How Green Was My Valley had 10 nominations. Another thing to make of note uh, about this particular Academy Awards 
and what has now looked back upon with How Green Was My Valley's win for Best Picture is that this is the same year as Citizen Kane. Uh, we will talk about that a little bit more, but just to let you know right off the bat uh, that this is now a more controversial win than it was at the time. But let's get right into it, starting with the Irving G. Thalberg Memorial Award, and that went to Walt Disney. Another one. Another one. Uh, I don't think we really like to focus too much on Walt Disney because he's going to get another honorary award. Um, so, John, would you like to say what the Academy Honorary Awards were for the 14th Academy Awards? Ray Scott for Kukan, which is about a Chinese resistance to Japanese aggression during the early part of World War II. The British Ministry of Information for Target for tonight. Leopold Stokowski for Fantasia. And Walt Disney... William Garrity, John N.A. Hawkins, and R.C. Manufacturing Company for Fantasia. Ben, what's your thoughts on Fantasia? It's fantastic. Oh, it's unbelievable. Yeah. Some of the most beautiful animation I, I still think of, I've, I've ever seen. Yeah. Yeah, it's such a great idea. And, and for Fantasia, they wrote uh, that it was for their outstanding contribution to the advancement of the use of sound and motion pictures through the production of Fantasia. So moving on to the best special effects category, and that went to I Wanted Wings, photographic effects by Farsiat Edouard and Gordon Jennings, and sound effects by Louis Mezenkop. And I just wanted to make a quick note that uh, I Wanted Wings, there was a lot of similarities to the production of Wings, the first Academy Award winner for Best Picture, uh, just because they filmed in Texas. They used a lot of, uh, of the United States Army's Air Corps crafts uh, to film everything. It was A lot of it was filmed in the sky. So it was very interesting that what is it 14 years later that wings is probably influences this other movie called I wanted wings and, and their special effects. So just wanted to tip my hat to uh, the first, the OG best picture winner. Best film editing goes to William Holmes for Sergeant York. This is Holmes only Oscar win. And it's notable here because we also have How Green Was My Valley by James B. Clark in the best film editing. So, Ben, do you think, we haven't seen Sergeant York, but do you think How Green Was My Valley is worthy of being nominated here and, and why? I think it's worthy of being nominated. Um, I don't think the editing was anything that fantastic just because it's really just piecing together the story, which I think is more on, I think sometimes with films like How Green Was My Valley is that it's more on the director who's dictating how the story sets so more on Ford. Whereas there's not much from a technical side of the editing that was like, whoa, that was like really uh, inventive and, and innovative versus Citizen Kane, which is not in this category, which is completely innovative of how their editing techniques and how that was done. So it's interesting that, um, it, I mean, Sergeant York was very popular for the year for, for 1941, but that beating out Citizen Kane is a little suspicious, at least to me. But How Green Was My Valley definitely deserved to be there, but. It's, I'm okay that didn't win this category. Yeah, it really told the story really well. And I think the really big props that I could give it is that it felt documentary-esque at certain times where like these, the editing of including this old grandma in the very beginning and it's just one shot of her like longingly look off in the distance. It's like, that didn't need to be in this film. Like yeah. that didn't need to be in here to tell the story, but the editor probably saw this and was like, oh, this is like, look how beautiful the shot is. Like, look how much this adds to the story and adds to the town. So I think the way this film kind of explores the Valley specifically is I think it definitely a big credit to the location as we kept talking about, but also due to the editor and kind of making it about the town as well. Best cinematography color went to blood and sand to Ernest Palmer and Ray Renahan. 
this was Renahan's second Oscar win. Uh, he, and he had previously won for Gone with the Wind. Best Cinematography, Black and White, goes to Arthur Miller for How Green Was My Valley. This is Miller's first of three Academy Award wins. His other two were The Song of Bernadette from 1944 and Anna and the King of Siam, 1947. Miller was born in Roslyn, New York, which is close to where Ben was born. It was close to where I was born. Uh, so I, I, when I saw that, I was like, oh, my God, we are almost the same. Yeah, exactly. Almost the same. We're almost the same, Arthur Miller. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, we we talked about it, and we said the cinematography is beautiful. I think that I I think that's a credit to Miller, and I think it's a credit to Ford because Ford, most of his films, the cinematography is always just brilliant, and just the way they're again they're able to capture the set and location. And uh, I I sort of hinted upon it when talking about the set of how he was influenced by German expressionism. I found a little tidbit that uh, that one of Ford's favorite films was Sunrise, F.W. Morneau, and a heavy German expressionist film. So there is a lot of German expressionism I find in Ford's films, and reading that, that just made it all come together. And I was like, okay, that makes complete sense of why things would look a certain way, how things are exaggerated within the set, and that's because uh, Ford loved German expressionism film. Uh, another thing in this is that Citizen Kane was also for Best Cinematography Black and White uh, for Greg Toland, and Toland is... Uh, if you follow us on Instagram, we posted about uh, deep focus photography, and that is so prevalent in uh, Citizen Kane. So, I, again, like, what? How can I pick one over the other? I don't know. I I don't really have a definitive answer, John. I don't know if you have a definitive answer uh, between the two, but uh, both are great. Just both well shot, and both deserving at least to be nominated to be there. Yeah, I mean, we talked the whole entire podcast about how visually stunning it was, so I think it's definitely worthy, and, and rightfully so, that win. Best Art Direction Interior Decoration Color went to Blossoms in the Dust, Art Direction by Cedric Gibbons and Yuri McCleary, Interior Direction by Edwin B. Willis. Uh, the film starred Walter Pigeon and Greer Garson. It was their first of many collaborations together. We will be talking about one of them in our next episode of Worthy, so stay tuned for that. Uh, Gibbons, this was his fourth of 11 Oscars. For Willis, this was his first of eight Oscars. He actually lost in 1936 for the great Zigfield. And McCleary's, this was his first of two Oscars, and he would win again in 1970 for the Best Picture winner, Patton. Best Art Direction, Interior Decoration, Black and White, goes to How Green Was My Valley. Art Direction by Richard Day and Nathan H. Duran. Interior Decoration, Thomas Little. So Ben, what is your interpretation of this winning art direction? Why do you think it deserved it? Because it really portrayed this Welsh town yeah. really properly, oh, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I, we didn't start this whole podcast. We didn't spend <laughs> most of the time without... Obviously, this film was going to win Best Art Direction. I mean, you could argue against Citizen Kane being there, but put that aside for a second... Because How Green Was My Valley, again, it's such a beautiful film. And, like, I don't care that it was filmed mostly outside in California, that it was supposed to almost look like a Wales town, which is why I think it's successful is because they built literally a whole town within this, like, mountainside to uh, to to capture that essence of Wales. And uh, it's just such a beautiful-looking film. I love the interiors. I love the inside of the Morgan home. There's Again, there's so much German expressionism influence like in that uh it, it it just i thought everything about the world felt so real that you could touch it and i could just go right through the screen and live there it felt it felt real it felt like the valley was this actual place you know and uh so i, I think it totally deserves it best sound recording 
went to that Hamilton woman, to Jack Whitney. That Hamilton woman was a Vivian Lee and Laurence Olivier film. This is Jack Whitney's second consecutive Oscar after winning the previous year for The Thief of Baghdad, but for the special effects category. Best original song goes to The Last Time I Saw Paris from Lady Be Good, music by Jerome Kern, and lyrics by Oscar Hammerstein. This is the first two wins for Hammerstein, who is part of the famous Broadway duo of Rodgers and Hammerstein. Their Broadway shows include Oklahoma, Carousel, South Pacific, The King and I, and The Sound of Music. So, two questions, Ben. Which is your favorite musical out of those, and why? Out of those? Yeah, you got to pick out of those. Okay, well... Have you seen any of those? I... Oklahoma was uh, my girlfriend's senior play, so I know that one pretty well. I saw South Pacific. I actually saw Hillary Clinton at the showing of South Pacific that I went to. That's weird. Yeah, it was weird, but I saw her there. Uh, the King and I, I loved growing up in The Sound of Music, Best Picture winner. I really love that one, too. If I had to pick, I think I'd go with The Sound of Music. Uh, I really I really do enjoy that film. Have you ever seen The Sound of Music? Of course. Wait, have you seen The Carousel? I've not seen. Kansas. Okay, I thought for a second you've seen every single one of these Broadway shows. I was like, "Holy shit, that's insane!" No, well, I've I would say I've seen all the show because I didn't see. You've seen the films too. Yeah, I didn't see the Sound of Music on on Broadway, on Broadway, yeah. but I saw the other. The other three as a performance, I just didn't see Carousel. So mm-hmm. I've seen a lot of plays, John. You may not know. <laughs> yeah, I've seen a surprise me a lot. You probably also may not know as well. Yeah, but a lot of random ones. But yeah, I mean, Sound of Music is my mom's favorite movie, so that's like a special place in my heart. Uh, the music in that is, is phenomenal. I didn't know that. Yeah, oh, that's it, gonna be a fun episode. Should we have your mom on for that episode? <laughs> I could ask. I'll see if she's down for that. Yeah, well, let us know if you want John's mom on. Yeah, Lydia, let me know. Yeah, let let us know. Uh, you can email us at worthysubmissions at gmail or hit us up on Instagram or Twitter at worthypod. We would love to know if we should bring John's mom on for one of these episodes. Hell yeah! Best scoring of a musical picture went to Dumbo. Frank Churchill and Oliver Wallace. Uh, so Dumbo was considered a quote-unquote straight animation, meaning that it was a pretty straightforward story. So it was actually given to lesser animators. Uh, and for those who may not know the story of Shrek, Shrek was viewed as one of those lesser animated stories. And then they basically put all the DreamWorks animators were like, okay, all the bad ones, you go to this one. And then they made something really brilliant. So it's sort of the same thing just a little bit earlier in the 1940s. Uh, But the animators actually went on strike in the middle of production, demanding higher pay, which they eventually got. But Disney ended up losing some of their top animators as a result of the strike. So even though they put their shitty animate or what they consider their shitty animators on Dumbo, they actually end up losing some of their better ones uh, just because of this, you know, unequal pay, which is similar to what they were talking about in how green was my Valley. Best scoring of a dramatic picture goes to Bernard Herman for All That Money Can Buy. Herman is most well known for his Hitchcock film Psycho, North by Northwest, The Man Who Knew Too Much, and Vertigo. Well, he also composed Citizen Kane, The Day the Earth Stood Still, Cape Fear, Fahrenheit 451, and Taxi Driver. He also did composition work for The Twilight Zone. And a small little fun tidbit is that Georgie's theme, which is Herman's score from the 1968 film Twisted Nerve, is whistled by assassin Ellie Driver in the hospital corridor scene in Quentin Tarantino's Kill Bill Volume 1. Ben, can you whistle that for me right now? I can't whistle. So. Nope, Ben, can you whistle that for me? I cannot whistle. <laughs> ben, try to whistle that for me. Yeah, okay. 
I shouldn't have asked you to do that. <laughs> I, I, people, I cannot whistle. I cannot snap. I actually just learned how to shuffle cards uh, the other night. He's learning, kids. Yeah, there's a lot. There are things I can do. <laughs> there are things I can't do, and and those are things I can't do. But uh, one of the interesting things about this category this year is that there were 20 nominees for uh, best original score. And How Green Was My Valley was in there. Citizen Kane was in there. Uh, Suspicion was in there. Sergeant York. Uh, it's uh, it's a pretty interesting field, especially because you're having best scoring of a musical picture and then just best scoring of a dramatic picture. This is so many films being nominated. I think it's kind of unnecessary. But congrats to Bernard Herrmann for beating everyone out, including himself again for uh, uh, Citizen Kane. Moving on. To best short subjects cartoons. I don't even think I have to say who won this, but because I'm sure you can guess it, but it's Linda Paw, Walt Disney Productions, and RKO Radio. Another one. Uh, so Linda Paw was the only Mickey Mouse Disney short to win an Academy Award. It was about Pluto saving a kitten and then being jealous of Mickey taking care of it. Wow, a mouse being jealous of a cat. <laughs> that's, <laughs> what a, that's interesting. It's so interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Best live action short subject to real goes to Metro Golden Mayor for Main Street on the March. This is a 20 minute film about Europe and America that leads up to the attacks on Pearl Harbor and their relation to the Second World War. Best live action short subject one real went to Of Pups and Puzzles to, again, MGM. Uh, this short film showcases how the War Department would utilize animals to assist with aptitude testing. Best Documentary goes to Churchill's Island from National Film Board of Canada and United Artists. This is the first film to win in the documentary category, as we mentioned in the very beginning. The phrasing of the title for this category would officially change to Best Documentary Short Subject, as well as the Best Documentary Film category would become its own thing in 1943. Best Original Story goes to Here Comes Mr. Jordan to Harry Seagal. The film was based on Seagal's play. Uh, is a film about a boxer who is mistakenly taken to heaven and is given a second chance on earth. Best screenplay goes to Here Comes Mr. Jordan by Sidney Bachman and Seton Miller, based on the play Heaven Can Wait by Harry Siegel. This is Bachman's only Oscar and was previously nominated in the same category for Mr. Smith Goes to Washington in 1939. Best original screenplay goes to Citizen Kane, Herman J. Mankiewicz, and Orson Welles. So... I want to preface this by saying that everything you would want to know about Citizen Kane is out there. We are not going to be talking about Citizen Kane, all the nuances and stories behind it. Maybe that's a future episode of Worthy. Um, but for this iteration and this first series for Worthy, we're focusing only on the best picture winners. And if you really want to know more about, you know, the whole you know story behind the screenplay and the controversy behind it, there's a great film called Mank that just came out from David Fincher that I would highly recommend. But I will talk about this a little bit. So neither Wells nor Mankiewicz attended the dinner. Uh, it was broadcast on radio. Wells is in South America filming It's All True, and Herman refused to attend. He was quoted by saying he did not want to be humiliated. Um, and then Richard Merriman, who's one of uh, who's written one of many books about Susan Keene and, and Mankiewicz's life, he wrote, On the night of the awards, Herman turned on his radio and sat in his bedroom chair. Sarah, his wife, lay, laid on the bed. As the screenplay category approached, he pretended to be hardly listening. Suddenly from the radio half-scream came Herman J. Mankiewicz. Wells' name as co-author was drowned by voices all through the audience calling out Mank. 
Mank, where is he? And Audible, above all others, was Irene Selznick going, where is he? Um, and that was from Richard Merriman's novel Mank from 1978. Um, just, yeah, that's that's the only win for Citizen Kane uh, for from the 14th Academy Awards. Best Supporting Actress goes to Mary Astor for The Great Lie as Sandra Kovic. This is Astor's first and only Oscar out of one nomination. Her career spanned from 1920 to 1964, starting in the silent film era, and uh, she was actually unfortunately cut out of the Buster Keaton film The Scarecrow. So while she took home the award for The Great Lie, she's probably most known or remembered for her role in The Maltese Falcon from that same year. Best Supporting Actor went to Donald Crisp for How Green Was My Valley as Gwilym Morgan. Uh, this was Crisp's only Oscar nomination and his only win. Uh, his 55-year career spanned hundreds of films. Uh, I've seen estimates up to the 400s for how many films he was actually in. Uh, he appeared in three total Best Picture winners, including Mutiny on the Bounty and The Life of Emile Zola, as well as How Green Is My Valley. And uh, an interesting thing I found out about him is that he invested heavily in the industry and real estate around Hollywood, and he became one of the wealthiest actors of his generation. So good on Donald Crisp. We talked about extensively how great his performance was. And to be honest, when I looked at like all of the best supporting actor performances that I've seen, I still think his is one of the best. Yeah, I think his definitely stands out. I think talking about how just unbelievably dramatic and uh, integral he is to the film, but with also being very limited in terms of the number of lines he has. Yeah, he still is that presence throughout the film, and he's kind of the core of How Green Is My Valley. There just wouldn't be the same movie without Donald Crisp. Best Actress goes to Joan Fontaine for Suspicion as Lena Asgarth. Now, this is famous for the two-sister rivalry that we've seen and uh, spoken a little bit about before, with her sister being Olivia de Havilland from Gone with the Wind. Fontaine won her first Oscar, and this is her second nomination coming off of last year's nomination for Rebecca. Um, and this is a consolation prize, some might say, for her amazing performance in Rebecca, as we spoke about last episodes. And uh, you could even see the similarity of both these uh, characters being victimized young brides. And this would be the only Best Actress win ever for a Hitchcock film. Well, it's the only best... It's only the... Best Actor Performance or any performance for any uh, Hitchcock film, which we did talk about in the previous film. We did a really interesting Instagram post uh, about De Havilland and Fontaine and their relationship, which I think can fill books because of how much of a rivalry they had. But this was like the uh, this was the culmination of it because they were competing against each other. So Fontaine for Suspicion and uh, De Havilland for Hold Back the Dawn, and it was it was a pretty shocking thing. I think for especially for De Havilland that that Fontaine won. I I thought Suspicion. I think it's actually a really interesting film, and and I thought her performance is really good. Cary Grant is very wacky in that film. Uh, he he does some very interesting things. But uh, yeah, Fontaine. I think we said she should have won for the year before for Rebecca. So this could be a consolation. But then it kind of uh, really divides the two sisters. So it's a very interesting dynamic that's being played along here. But this actress uh, category, I just want to take another second to say like how great it was. So you had Fontaine going against Betty Davis, Olivia de Havilland, Greer Garson, and Barbara Stanwyck, all powerhouses uh, for their uh, generation. And um, again, I think it just builds up more and more that of the 
of how great it is to be nominated for an Academy Award, I think, just gets higher, elevated higher and higher uh, throughout the years. Moving on to Best Actor, I went to Gary Cooper as Alvin C. York in Sergeant York. Sergeant York was the highest grossing film of 1941. It was about Alvin C. York, a decorated American soldier in World War I. This was Cooper's first of two Academy Award wins for Best Actor. He would go on to win for High Noon in 1952. Uh, Cooper was also given an honorary award of the 33rd Academy Awards. Best Director goes to John Ford for How Green Was My Valley. This is the third Best Director win out of four total. It has the most Best Director wins out of anyone for The Informer in 1935, The Grapes of Wrath in 1940, How Green Was My Valley This Year, and in 1952, The Quiet Man. I actually love that movie. Uh, None of them are Westerns, ironically, since he was known uh, to be such a Western director in those iconic John Wayne films that he would go on to make later in his career. Um, we talked a little bit about his particular style, you being limited to two or three takes, you know, not dealing with any antics, kind of being a very strict um, kind of ruler on set that really uh, helped him get in inside and play inside baseball with a lot of the producers and a lot of the production companies because they loved how efficient he was and how uh, demanding and specific he was to get the films done on time within budget. Yeah, I, I think the, the 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 most surprising thing that I was reading up on and Ford's process is that he didn't use storyboards at all, which is just like, how the hell are you going to get through a film or, in, or creating a film without having any storyboards is beyond me. Uh, so it, I thought that was very interesting, but I wanted to pose this quick question to John was if William Randolph Hearst wasn't so pissed at Orson Welles and basically smeared him in citizen Kane, do you think let's put aside the debate about best picture for a second, but do you think Orson Welles should have, should have won for this, especially when you consider John Ford had already won twice. In terms of him winning already, yeah, like it makes you want to think, yeah, give it to someone else. Like he's won already. He's going to continue to win, not knowing that contextually now in history. I think Citizen Kane is such an interesting film just because of how unique and different it is, especially for the time, it feeling so much like a uh, documentary in a way, even though it's a fiction film. Yeah. I think we'll reveal more of my feelings in the next category, but yeah, I could see Citizen Kane winning or Orson Welles winning over John Ford. Yeah, I, I think there's certainly an argument, but it's um, it's pretty interesting uh, when you think about that. Maybe uh, maybe Orson Welles should have gotten it. But moving on to the last category of the 14th Academy Awards, Outstanding Motion Picture, the nominees are Suspicion, Sergeant York, one Foot in Heaven, The Maltese Falcon, The Little Foxes, Hold Back the Dawn, Here Comes Mr. Jordan, Blossoms in the Dust, Citizen Kane, and How Green Was My Valley, which would win Daryl Evzanik for 20th Century Fox. Uh, first, just to give some stats and numbers to How Green Was My Valley, it currently holds a 91% on Rotten Tomatoes, an average Rotten Tomatoes rating of 8.04 out of 47 Critic reviews. The top critic reviews give it 100%, and their average rating is a 7.3, so it's 100% of them give it a fresh rating. Uh, the audience score is an 81%, and the average audience score is a 3.97. IMDb, it is a 7.7. It won five Academy Awards out of 10 nominations. So, John, what did you give How Green Was My Valley? I gave How Green Was My Valley an 85 out of 100. 
I think I hit on most of the points. I think uh, some of the criticism I have with the film is the way it was kind of adapted. You know, it felt like it needed a little bit more time. I felt like the run length was perfect, but in order to really fully give these characters a little bit more of the screen time in order to kind of have their, their plots fully blossom, as I'll say, uh, within that green valley, I think it's an absolutely beautiful film. It's it's one of the few films that I've really thought about kind of consistently, and I thought about some of the imagery, and it really made me emotional, and I really cared about this family, so I think that says a lot for a film. Yeah, I, uh, I certainly feel the same way. I think I'm surprisingly going against to how I would have in the past because I actually lowered my score from when I originally watched this movie. When I originally watched it, I actually gave it a 94 and uh, I was really impressed by this film. When I first watched it, I actually didn't know that it beat out Citizen Kane, uh, which shattered my mind because I was like, well, this is the film because I was really infatuated with it and I really liked it. And then rewatching it again, I still love it. And I still liked it. I just felt that what I thought was like some of the more grander aspects of it was actually pretty quick. And it, it went by faster for me having known what happened, but I actually wish there was more. And that's my biggest criticism is that I wish... I wish this movie was longer than it's like an hour and 58 minutes. I would take a two and a half hour version of this film. I think the story deserved it. Yeah. yeah. The story deserves so much more. Um, so I, that's my biggest criticism with it. I think it's really great overall. Um, so I actually gave it an 88. Wow. Which is pretty dramatic. If you, uh, for my scores, uh, at least to decrease. So out of 14 films, John, you, your average rating is at a 67. And mine is a 73. So I think we should ask that question, especially because of the debate for Citizen Kane for Best Picture. Is How Green Was My Valley worthy of the Best Picture Award for 1941? I say yes. I say it's worthy. I don't think it should have won Best Picture. You're saying it's worthy of being nominated then? I think it's... I think that if this movie came out the, put it the year as simmering, but like put it so many other years, it probably would have still won. And I don't know if Citizen Kane would have necessarily been like my top choice because I really liked the Maltese Falcon. Yeah, I haven't it. seen the Maltese Falcon, okay. which I love noir and like yeah. detective stories too. And I'm like, ah, oh, man, maybe yeah. I'll change my mind. Yeah, I really like the Maltese Falcon and I really like Suspicion from that year. And I really do love Citizen King, and I love How Green Was My Valley. So I'm going to say it's worthy. It's certainly worthy of its award. I'm not trying to take anything away from it. I think I'm letting popular opinion try and influence me about Citizen Kane. Uh, we'll I, talk about it. What do you like better, How Green Was My Valley or Citizen Kane? Uh, yeah, this, now this is where I've been say it. all day. Uh, How Green Was My Valley, I think I like a little bit more than Citizen Kane. But I do also appreciate Citizen Kane for what it is. And I do think sometimes that films, even though I may like a film better, can win over the other. I think that that's a thing that can happen. Well, a lot of people say Citizen Kane deservingly should have won because of just how influential it was on films, right? Yeah. How much it changed the medium, how much it really... Uh, inspired people and how new and fresh it felt for a lot of creators and a lot of people in the industry at the time so that's a big question like whether something new and is is pushing forward technology pushing forward the medium that's really impactful and that should be honored and, and noted but is that what the academy is for is it the best story is it the best film well entirely that, well that's the thing is like what what is it for because a story from a story standpoint yeah how green is my valley is the, so much better it's, it's, it's Honestly, such a better so much story better. and 
but then when you get to the technical merits of both films, it's like neck and neck for me. But I think the story is what edges it out. Um, so, that, which is why I'm saying like it's it's worthy. Like, yeah, it deserves to be a best picture winner, and I'm so for it for winning best picture. I I actually think it's stupid that people would criticize it because Citizen Kane didn't win. It's not how green was my valley's fault. It was William Randolph Hearst's own, you know, small mindedness and smearing Orson Welles and Citizen Kane, which is why it didn't win. Uh, you can read up on the history of that uh, if you don't know about it. But so, it, so I always find it unfair. There are t- plenty of other best picture winners that did win that were absolute shit that didn't deserve to win. But How Green Is My Valley is a great movie and I would highly recommend it. It just enters that debate of like Citizen Kane, How Green Is My Valley. And, and I'm saying I don't think Citizen Kane is the best film of all time, but I do recognize it for how important it is. And then you also have the Maltese Falcon. You also have Suspicion, Sergeant York, and it, it just there's there's so there's just such a strong year. So it's really interesting. There's a debate that can be held about it, um, but I think I'm still saying how green is my valley is worthy. I'm not saying it's not. I think it's fascinating that people have the audacity to say one film is the greatest film of all time. I know. That's insane to me. Who started this? I don't know. You mentioned to me that you were looking into like trying to figure out where did this come from? Why is it lauded as one of the most amazing films of all time? Why is it the best film of all time? I'm not sure. You know, maybe that's on us to like really watch a lot more. I've seen the film once. It's actually funny because the first time I watched it was this year. And I now just watch How Green Was My Valley. So coming from this perspective perspective, of seeing these two films in the same year is interesting because I see them in the same light. But looking at Citizen Kane and looking at that film and people saying that that's the best film of all time is like fascinating to me because it feels like a documentary. It feels very much in line to be a documentary storytelling. And maybe people say that because documentaries then took some of the formula and took some of the aspects of Citizen Kane to then like make the documentary genre and make what a documentary is, you know, like Citizen Kane's filled with a bunch of talking heads talking about Citizen Kane. And to be honest, this is a hot take. Why do I want to watch a movie about people talking about another (laughs) character? Like give me that character and he's in the film. But to be honest, how green was my Valley is a much more interesting story with much deeper themes with much more interesting characters and honestly, I'm going to say it. Come at me at WorthySubmissions at gmail.com. <laughs> Citizen Kane, not only is Orson Welles self-obsessed filmmaker, but he's that Citizen Kane is a self-obsessed film yeah. because it's about Citizen Kane. It's about him like rolling in a circle over and over about his ego and this like corruption of a man and, and this like overarching hero. I just don't think that's that interesting to me. I think maybe it just comes down to my personal take on each story. Yeah, I, before we like really explode here, you know, we I really do think that when we are finished with all the best picture winners and we go back and do some more episodes that we will do a full-fledged episode on Citizen Kane. Uh, but I just want to leave this my last point on on this for right now is that I think Citizen Kane is what people who first enjoy movies and and find out they want to be in film production, that's one of the first movies they go to to watch because it's now become a part of culture where it's like, oh, Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane is is the best is the best film to watch, and uh, and it's the best of all time. So I think that people come at it from a very, um, I I don't know how else to call it, but like they're not as uh, 
they're not as adverse to film and film history because they're younger and they're coming out of a younger perspective and they're just being told that this is the greatest film of all time. It's a great film. It's extremely innovative and it's extremely unique and, and I do love it. But I think that from for us, and I did come at Citizen Kane way later in my film watching career and I think I consciously decided to do that was because I felt that there were so many other movies and I think I can name 10 other movies that are better than Citizen Kane that I would consider as the best films before I even think about Citizen Kane on that list. So I think we should leave it at that. Um, How Green Is My Valley is such a great movie. I So let's not focus on like, oh, it beat out Citizen Kane. Fuck that. Watch How Green Is My Valley. It is so good. It is such a rich story. Um, I, I, I really do wish more and more people watch it it's available on hulu right now so it's easily accessible you can easily watch it you can easily watch it it's no excuse it's not a long movie and uh we would love to hear your opinions on it um is there anything else that we should touch upon how green is my valley john all i gotta say is how green was my podcast (laughs) how green is my podcast this is sorry i'm so sorry guys (laughs) (laughs) so that's the end of this episode i'm ben and i'm john and And this this is worthy. worthy men like my father cannot die They are with me still, real in memory as they were in flesh, loving and beloved forever. How green was my valley then. Thanks for listening to Worthy, the breakdown of every Best Picture winner from past to present. You can listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out on Instagram at Worthy Podcast, on Twitter at Worthy Pod, and on Facebook at Worthy Podcast. Any inquiries can be submitted to worthy submissions at gmail.com. Again, that's worthy submissions at gmail.com. Amen.